Thanks for joining us for Open Bible Online today. Open Bible Baptist Church has been in South Jersey for over 60 years. We love this community and we want to be a help to you. In order to help us help you in the best way possible, would you do us a favor? Please fill out the digital connection card posted in this link. Here you could post prayer requests and also ask any questions you may have about Open Bible. If you'd like to give today, you could give online in less than two minutes. Visit openbiblenj.org for more information. Thanks again for joining us today. Now enjoy the service. Good Sunday morning, and thank you for joining us again here as we start off the week uh, with some worship. We're going to get started here in Nehemiah chapter 5 today. We're going to continue in Nehemiah this time chapter 5, so I encourage you to uh, turn your Bibles there. As you're doing so, I want to tell you about a man by the name of Gustav Freitag. Right? Uh, he was a German playwright and novelist who lived in the 1800s. Uh, he developed a model for analyzing good storytelling. You know, it's something that we call Gustav's or Freitag's Pyramid. We named it after him. Uh, and that was for a, a good storytelling in a play, in a, in a book. Today, we could apply it to a movie, too. And uh, we have a picture of it there of what it would look like. Uh, some versions have five points to a good story. I like this one with nine. So basically, if you imagine a triangle, uh, but the bottom line you split in half, and then you turn the lines 180 uh, around the other way. Uh, so you've got like line, um, diagonal going up, diagonal going down, then a line going the other way. That's Freitag's Pyramid. And the idea of it is that every good story somehow fits this. So here's the basic uh, way it works. First, you have opening exposition. Uh, this tells you the who, the where, the when of the story. It's the setting. Uh, and then there's an inciting incident. This is what makes the story different from every other day. Something happens that just it gets the ball rolling and it makes it unique. That leads to the rising action as the story builds up. Uh, and then there's a complication that leads to the climax, the high point of the story. Uh, and then it leads into falling action of... Um, down to the resolution. That doesn't mean the story has to have a happy ending, uh, just that it resolves. And then we have a fancy French word here for the last part, that's denouement. It's just, it's so fun to say, even if you don't know what it means, just denouement, right? But it actually means uh, an untying or unknotting. Uh, the idea is that all of the loose ends in the story that were kind of tied up together, they, they get unloosened, <laughs> I guess you could say, uh, and uh, the story comes to a close there. So, believe it or not, nearly all good stories actually fit Freitag's Pyramid. Uh, you could plug in any modern action movie, superhero movie, a lot of books, they all fit. Uh, you say, okay, that, that's cool. Well, what's the point? Well, I want to do something kind of weird, uh, but really neat uh, for the sermon today. And that is, I want to take our passage of Nehemiah 5, and I want to plug it into Freitag's Pyramid. And we're going to be able to study it out this way and, and see how the story progresses point for point, just like Freitag said a good story should. Uh, you say, that's kind of weird. Yeah, but I think Bible study should be fun. So we're going to have a little bit of fun with this today uh, because I want you to understand that not only is your Bible true and accurate, which it is, but it's also just a really well-written literary masterpiece. I want to help you appreciate that a little bit today as we uh, study it out. So... Sound good? You ready for that? All right, let's start in verse 1, opening exposition. This will be the first verse here. It says, There is a great cry of the people and of their wives against the brethren, the Jews. Uh, so who are the main characters of this story? And there would be some couples 
who were shall we say, dissatisfied customers uh, of the way that some of the Jewish leadership uh, was taking care of the people. They were not um, acting well. They were taxing them uh, very exorbitantly. Now, we know from previous parts of the book that this took place about 440 years before Jesus in the newly reestablished land of Israel. This was supposed to be like almost a whole new nation. Uh, they, they were starting up a whole new kingdom uh, in preparation of, of making it good enough for the Messiah to come. But yeah, that's not exactly what's happening here, right? We, we run into the inciting incident in verses 2 through 5. Uh, these Jews bring a complaint, actually three complaints to Nehemiah. Uh, I think that's a little funny because isn't that just the way life works, right? It's never just the AC in the house that goes out. It's the AC and the dishwasher and the dryer and, you know, the, the car battery all in one day at the same time. Well, that, that's what's happening to Nehemiah here. He just gets bombarded with one thing after another. So the first group comes up and they say, We, our sons, our daughters, are many. Therefore, we take up corn for them that we may eat and live. Uh, basically, they're saying, Hey, pal, you're supposed to be leading this, you know, nice little kingdom here. But we got no food. We got big families, we're on a last TV dinner, we got one box of cereal left in the pantry and no money left to buy more. <laughs> you didn't know these guys were from South Philly, right, talking like that? <laughs> so they've got no food, no money left to buy more. Uh, and that's not a good situation to be in. But it just keeps getting worse. Here comes the second group. They say, well, we've mortgaged our lands, our vineyards, our houses, that we might buy corn because of this dearth. In other words, they look at the first group and they say, you think you got it bad? We've already been there. We've had to sell everything we have, you know, try to mortgage it, scrounge around a little bit extra money, and buy some food with that. Well, now we're on the last bit of that money. <laughs> then the third group comes up. It's, just, it's snowballing here. It's, each one gets a little bit worse. These guys say, we borrowed money from the king's tribute, that upon our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh, it's as the flesh of our brethren. Our children is their children. Lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants. Some of our daughters are brought into bondage already. Neither is it in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and our vineyards. They say, yeah, we've hit rock bottom. We've sold everything we had. We hit rock bottom again. And now we have to sell ourselves and our kids into slavery to pay off this debt. That's not good. Now, I realize that slavery is a very politically and emotionally charged word. And I'm not preaching a message about that today, but I think I would be remiss if I didn't make at least two points about it. The first is that God values every human life equally, regardless of skin color, age, gender, ethnicity, anything else. God values each human life equally. Now, I, I realize, I'm ashamed to admit it, but it's true that this book has been used to justify slavery in the past. But I believe that if you were to study it out for yourself, which I encourage you to do if you have any questions, you will find that God is actually thoroughly against slavery. He has never justified it, and he has never approved of it. Now, he worked sometimes in the past within systems uh, that used it, but he himself never justified it. And in fact, I'm not just talking about Jesus. Even back in the law, there were uh, laws against slavery. There, there was discussion of freedom, not just spiritual freedom, but physical freedom also. So first, God is against slavery. And second, this is actually not the same kind of slavery we would think of today. Now, I'm not saying that makes it better or worse. I'm just saying that you can't read a 21st century American mindset 
back into a couple thousand year old Middle Eastern book and expect things to go well. That's just not the way it works. You see, it was, it was very popular in Nehemiah's day if you had a debt that you couldn't pay to sell either yourself or your kids into slavery to pay off that debt. The idea was that once you'd worked long enough to uh, have paid off the debt, you would get your freedom back. Uh, very common practice. In fact, by the time of Jesus in the Roman Empire, uh, we know there were a lot of freed slaves that made up the empire. But common practice or not, that doesn't mean that God approved of it. Uh, you see, God did not allow his children to sell themselves as slaves to each other. Even back in the time of the law, Leviticus 25:39 commanded the Israelites not to keep Jewish slaves. And the people in Nehemiah's day knew this too. You see, back in Ezra's part of the story, and a few chapters later, here again in Nehemiah, Ezra, who was a, a scribe, he was the resident Bible scholar, if you will, of the community, he read the scriptures to the people. So they knew that this was wrong, and they were doing it anyway. So that leads to the rising action of verse 6, as Nehemiah, he gets very angry at the mistreatment of the people uh, at the hands of these leaders. And the complication comes in verse 7 as Nehemiah says he consulted within himself. Uh, now when I read that, I think of him almost like basically talking to himself. Like, oh, what am I going to do with these people? You know, almost like uh, Ricky from I Love Lucy, whenever Lucy did something stupid and he'd just go off on his tangent, what am I going to do with this woman? You know, I kind of feel like that's how, what Nehemiah said, what am I going to do with these people? And then he just goes, oh, I'm going to follow my heart. Uh, that's at least the way that I initially read it. But if we're being fair to the text... That's actually the exact opposite of what it means. You see, that word consulted literally means I mastered my heart. It's pretty cool. So the idea was that Nehemiah he knew he was angry. We, we get that from the previous verse. So he took time to get his own heart under control before he made a decision. You know, we could, we could I guess, say it's like Nehemiah's counting to 10 before he did anything, right? And I, I think there's a good lesson in this for us, too. Um, in that when we get mad, it would be smart to first master our own heart before making any decision. So I'd say never make a decision when you're angry. You know, it's not wrong to be angry. Anger is actually just a natural reaction to an injustice. You know, whether that would be against us or against somebody that we care about, anger is a natural reaction to that. It is not wrong until we act on it wrongly. You know, God said, be angry. He knew we would get mad at stuff, but, but let's not forget the rest of that verse, right? He said, and sin not. So this week, when your kid is playing around the house and accidentally breaks that family heirloom, it's okay to feel angry at first, but it's not okay to respond to him in anger. You would do better to first step aside for a minute, master your own heart, and then deal with the situation. Now, this is the climax. This is the, the high point of the story uh, for this chapter, verses 7 through 11, as Nehemiah confronts the leaders of the people. And how do you think they respond? Pretend like you've never heard the story before. How does it usually go in your life when you go up to someone and say, yeah, you're wrong and I'm right? You know, maybe not exactly in those words, but have you ever had to confront someone where you say, yeah, you're wrong, I'm right, even just in a, an argument? How does that usually go? <laughs> Do, do, do people usually take that well? Uh, they don't when I say that, right? Well, that is what we would expect with Nehemiah. And let's not forget, too, that he had some serious political opposition in the part of Sambalat and Tobiah. 
You know, we talked about them last week. They weren't just uh, two random hecklers at a play that were throwing, you know, rotten tomatoes at, at the actors. These were pol powerful political leaders who had armies supporting them. And they didn't like Nehemiah. And there were some Jews in, the, in Israel at that time that weren't on Nehemiah's side. You see, it wasn't just all the good guys are for Nehemiah and all the bad guys are for Sambalah and Tobiah. There were good people on both sides of this. I mean, just like anything today, you know, there's no one party, there's no one side, there's no one uh, part of an issue that's all good and the other's all bad, right? There's, there's usually good people on both sides of it. So, so Nehemiah was actually quite literally putting his neck on the line uh, by standing up here and saying what he thought was right. I have to commend him for that. That is some serious courage. He could have at best lost his job and at worst lost his life. So how did the people respond? Well, look at verse 12. Then said they, we will restore them and will require nothing of them. So we'll do as thou sayest. Then I called the priests and took an oath of them that they should do according to this promise. I'm not going to lie, that, that kind of surprised me. They admit they were wrong, and they went along with Nehemiah's plan. That, that's kind of awesome, actually. That's the reversal of the story that leads to the falling action as Nehemiah binds them by an oath before God. And then there's the resolution as Nehemiah contrasts their poor leadership with the way that he led them as governor. He says in verse 17, Moreover, there were at my table 150 of the Jews and rulers, besides those that came unto us from among the heathen that are about us. So every day, he is feeding over 150 people at his table. That's no small number. Now look at the next verse. Now that which was prepared for me daily was one ox, six choice sheep, also fowls were prepared for me, and one in ten days store of all sorts of wine. Yet for all this required not I the bread of the governor, because the bondage was heavy upon the people. This is his menu every day. One ox. That is a full-grown adult male cow. Do you have any idea how much meat can come off of one adult cow? A whole lot. A whole lot. And, and then six choice sheep. I mean, we're not just talking about, you know, some scrawny, scraggly leftovers. These were the best that they could possibly get. And then also fowls were prepared for me. Uh, we have no idea how many, but I, I guess these guys love their chicken. You know, I don't know. Uh, and then once every other week, they got a massive shipment of wine. There's the menu. <laughs> Pretty cool. But don't miss the rest of the verse. Yet for all this, all this massive menu, did not I require the bread of the governor because the bondage was heavy upon this people? What does that mean? It's kind of awkward language. Uh, it means that Nehemiah paid for all this out of pocket. That would be pretty expensive. You see, it, it was the custom of the governors at that time to get the food that they needed uh, to feed the people under them from the common folk uh, as a tax. But Nehemiah didn't charge that tax of the Israelites because he knew that the tax they were under was already exorbitant. I mean, you, you think New Jersey tax is bad? And we're talking over 50% was possibly taxed at this time of their lives. So Nehemiah didn't want to add to that. So that means that every single day, he paid for a cow, six sheep, a bunch of birds, and then every 10 days he paid for 
some massive amount of wine. <laughs> Do you get how expensive that would be? You know, I, I never thought of Nehemiah as a philanthropist before, you know, somebody who gave to his community, uh, but he was. He used the resources wisely and well for the benefit of the people under him who were not as fortunate as he was. Uh, that's, that's really cool. I guess you could almost say like Nehemiah was you know, a celebrity of his day. I don't know if it would have been you know, a multimillionaire or billionaire, whatever it might have equated to, but you know, think of those types of people that we have in our culture today. Do we usually think of them as having the best interest of everybody else in mind? Probably not, right? It's like, okay, you know, maybe they give a few bucks to charity here and there, but then they're also living in a multi-million dollar mansion with a few yachts and, you know, the Lamborghinis and everything. And we're like, do you really care about other people like you say? Well, Nehemiah put his money where his mouth was, <laughs> literally, because it was the menu too. I, I know, bad joke. But that is the resolution of the story. And then at least the last part, the denouement is this really strange little prayer that Nehemiah offers at the end of the chapter. Verse 19, he says, Think upon me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Uh, so Nehemiah basically says, They did all this stuff wrong. God, please remember all the stuff I did right. I've, I've really tried to get inside Nehemiah's head on this one, and I feel like it could go one of two ways. Uh, I feel like you could interpret this either as his maybe being a little self-serving or selfish at this point, where it's like, hey, God, they, they really messed up with all this stuff, but I did pretty well. Remember the good stuff I did. I think that's possible. Or I think you could also see it as Nehemiah was just saying, I did the best with what I had. I tried. I gave it my best shot. You know, like a legitimate cry for help at that point. Oh, whatever you think his motivation may have been, you'll actually find as you study out the book of Nehemiah that that was a pretty common prayer for him. And the most important point that I think we can take from that prayer is that we ourselves don't have to pray like that. You see, a few hundred years before Nehemiah, there was a guy by the name of Isaiah. We have a, a book in the Bible named after him. And he wrote this. He said, All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That means that every good thing that you can do is about as useful as the rag you use to clean the toilet with, in God's sight. That's, that's, that's pretty discouraging. Not gonna lie, right? <laughs> but that's not the end of the story. We also have to read 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says that Jesus became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Did you catch that? If you know Jesus as your personal savior, you are his righteousness. It's not that you have some of his righteousness. You are his righteousness. <laughs> it does not get more encouraging than that, my friends. That means that when you feel dirty or guilty or too far gone for God to use, that means that in that moment, in the courtroom of heaven, God looks at you and he doesn't see the mistakes, the mess ups, the sins, the scars. No, he sees his son. He sees perfect. He sees flawless. You don't ever have to try to measure up to be good enough for God. You don't ever need to pray a prayer like this that Nehemiah did where you say, well, I, I, just, I did my best. I, I hope that was good enough for you, God. You don't have to do that because God has already done it all. It's not about what you can do. It's about what God has done. And that's true for salvation. That is true for getting you to heaven. But Christian, it's also true for you also. 
If that was good enough to save you, it's good enough to lead you along in life too. You can't just say, all right, now I'm gonna try to do everything on my own until I get to heaven. No, God wants to give you the strength for that too. There you have Nehemiah chapter five. It was a really beautifully structured story. It's really cool uh, the way that it just works out all that way. So you say, all right, what's the takeaway from this? How, uh, how can we apply this to our lives today? Well, I'd say that the overall theme of this passage has been a contrast between uh, the leaders of the people and Nehemiah. And it's been about how they differently used their God-given resources. On the one hand, you have the leaders of the people who use their resources, their power, uh, their money, their prestige, their position for what? For more power, for more money, for more prestige, for more position. They were abusing the people under them by draining the resources that the common man had in order to fill their own coffers, which I might add were already very full. Now, on the other hand, you have Nehemiah. Nehemiah was apparently a very wealthy man, but how did he use his wealth? He benefited the people under him. You see, each of us here has resources. Now, some of us have more resources than others, and some have less than others, but we all have resources. You know, if you're sitting here watching this, this means that you have some sort of a screen, some sort of a device. Maybe it's a TV, phone, tablet, computer, whatever it is you're watching this on right now. That is a resource. That's a technology that you have. Uh, yes, it could be money, uh, but it doesn't have to be money. A resource could be your time, uh, your house, your car, your clothes, uh, an ability to cook, a desire to encourage other people. Whatever it is, we all have resources. So then the question becomes, what do we do with them? You see, the passage, and really the Bible as a whole, doesn't just give us information. It can, and that's good. Some of us like the information, but all of us need application too. The Bible doesn't just fill your brain with, with info. It brings you to a decision point. And that's where we are right now. You see, you have to choose what you are going to do with the resources you have. The time, the money, the house, the car, the talents, abilities, etc., whatever else. Are you going to use that to advance your own interests? Or are you going to use them to advance the kingdom of God? Every resource you have, every time you use it, will be either advancing your own interests or it will be advancing the kingdom of God. I know we Baptists always uh, love our, our stories of uh, money. We always preach about money and stuff like that, about you need to tie it, but let's put money aside for a second. What about a different illustration? Last week, I mentioned that I had counseled uh, at a Christian camp two years ago. It was the Wilds uh, down North Carolina, and it, it's awesome camp. But if you've ever been there, you know that you have to defy death about 20 times going up the mountain to get to the camp, right? With all the hairpin turns you gotta do going up and, and down that mountain. So it, it's generally a good idea to have a car that is in good working order before you go there. Well, when, when I was driving down uh, to council there, I mean, just as soon as we're getting to the base of the mountain, power steering goes out on my car. Not exactly ideal situation. Uh, so we were kind of close to Asheville. That's about an hour away from when you get to the camp. And we found a, a car shop that was able to fix it up. Uh, so we knew they were going to take a little while with it, about a week. I could finish training camp, come back and get it. So we leave the car there. I'm at camp. I finish my week of training camp. I get the call and my car is ready. So now I just need to find someone to take me there and, and you know, get the car back. 
So I started asking around a little bit and I find a friend of mine, you know, we weren't like crazy good best friends or anything, but we went to school together. I'd known him for two years. So I was comfortable enough asking him if he would uh, give me the ride. Uh, and he agreed. He said, yeah, that, that's fine. You know, I, I offered to pay for gas, whatever else I needed to. Uh, and he took me and if I remember right, he might have even bought me lunch that day. I remember we stopped at a barbecue place he really liked. Uh, so we get there, we do the, you know, the hour drive, get to Asheville, get to the car shop. Now I, I knew beforehand that the shop was going to be closed um, when we got there. So the car had been set aside off to the side so I could just get in, drive it off. We were already paid for, it was good to go. So he parks, I thank him, get out of the car, I start walking toward mine. And as I am about to reach my hand on the handle of my car, my heart just sinks. I don't mean into my stomach, I mean down below my feet sinks as I realize that I left my keys back at the cabin at the camp. And yes, my car was locked. I just, I hang my head in shame. I drag my feet over to his car, open the door, sit down, look over at him and say, I'm sorry, I left my keys at camp. Can you just take me back? I'll get somebody else to bring me back. I, I'm, I am so sorry to have wasted your time. And, and the kid said, hey, don't worry about it. I'll, bring, I'll take you back there and bring you back too. He said, look, I, I don't have anything better to do today. I'll help you out. I'm not gonna lie though, I felt horrible. <laughs> I felt like such a jerk about it. I mean, I didn't forget my keys on purpose, but this was a guy who, it's not like we had known each other for 10 years or anything. You know, we were just kind of sort of friends uh, for two years. And, and here he was literally going way out of his way in order to help me. I, I, just, I felt so badly. Uh, it was obvious too. There was no way I was gonna hide it. And so he looked over at me while we were heading back and he said, listen, I will never forget this. And, and Caleb, if somehow you ever end up seeing this sermon, please forgive me for any details I get wrong. But he said, look, I needed a car. And I prayed that God would provide one for me. And I told God, if you give me a car, I promise that I will always use it for your glory. I promise that I will use it to help other people. Now, if somebody needs a ride, whether it's a stranger or my best friend, whoever, I will give it to them. He said, so what you're doing right now, I know it, it wasn't your fault, you didn't mean to, you're just letting me serve God. I don't need to get paid back for it. You're helping me keep my promise to God. I was speechless. <laughs> there was, I, what can you say at that point aside from, well, thank you, <laughs> you know? He, he didn't give me any money. He was just as much a broke college student as I was, but he gave me the gift of his time and his car. Uh, he saw that, though, that he had a car, and in that moment, I didn't. So he had his resource that he used to advance God's kingdom. He could have used it to advance his own interest that day. I, I'm, I'm not saying, you know, between driving the car to a good place versus a bad place. And for all I know, he might want to go to Walmart. You know, there's nothing wrong with Walmart. But all that would have done was advance his own self-interest. But instead, he chose to use the car. I mean, how creative can you get in serving God? He used a car to advance the kingdom of God. Isn't that what Jesus said God's kingdom was all about anyway? In Matthew 9, 41, Jesus said that giving a cup of water to someone in need was just like giving it to God himself. 
it's just as important as any other form of service. But what does that imply? It implies that you have a cup and you have access to water and that somebody near you doesn't have either of those. See, Jesus didn't say you have to go back to your kitchen and sell every cup you have in the pantry. He didn't say that you have to buy cups of water for people halfway around the world. He just said that you need to take your cup, fill it with the water you have access to, and use it to serve somebody near you who has less than you do. There's a little saying that goes, only two choices on the shelf, pleasing God, pleasing self. And those are the two choices you will have this week when it comes to your resources. When it comes to every decision you make, every penny you spend, every minute you have, every resource you own will be advancing either your self-interest or God's kingdom. So as we close out this week, I want to invite you to consider the resources you have in your life and how you might better be able to use them to advance God's kingdom this week. As a church, let's see God's kingdom go forward. Hey friend, I'm Pastor George Riddell. I'm the lead pastor here at Open Bible Baptist Church. And if you accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal savior today, we'd like you to fill out the electronic connection card. You can click on that below. And I will personally send you this little book called Done, What Other Religions Don't Tell You About the Bible. And I'd also like to send to you this brand new Bible. So take a moment to be able to fill out that electronic connection card, and we promise you we'll get this to you in the mail. Looking forward to hearing from you and encouraging you in your walk with the Lord. Have a great day. Thanks again for watching us online today. If you haven't done so already, please fill out a digital connection card so we know how to better serve you this week. For encouragement throughout your week, you can listen to past sermons by searching Open Bible Baptist Church on the Apple Podcast or Google Play Store. If you'd like to give today, you could give online at openbiblenj.org. Thanks again for joining us today. We'll see you on the next broadcast.